from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today on the program, we're talking about bee diversity, blood platelets, genetic engineering, environmental journalism, the fast-changing world of medicine, and the future of our planet. No joke, we're going to hit on all of that and more in one half-hour show. The ecologist and the biomedical engineer, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Today, we're going to be talking about two areas of science that seem to be moving in sort of different directions. Human medicine today is moving so fast that it's hard to keep up with what we are learning. By some estimates, global medical knowledge is now doubling every year, such that some people believe we will be able to cure all chronic diseases within this century. That's amazing. And then in the field of ecology, I hear again and again that what we're learning about the complicated and always changing relationship between organisms and their environments is that the world is so complex and so much more complex with every study that we make that we might never be able to understand it enough to turn back the damage we've done to it. Okay, does that all sound a little overly existential? Don't worry, as we always do here, we're going to be talking about real hard science today. But yeah, I think we're going to be getting to some big unanswerable questions too. Joining us in studio today is Tara Deans. Her research uses molecular biology, genetic engineering, and math modeling to improve therapies and treatments across a wide range of health conditions. And she is the recent recipient of a National Institutes of Health grant that will support her work to develop a method to stop the spread of cancer. Tara Dean, thanks for coming in to chat with us today. Thank you for having me. And with us on the line from New Orleans, where she doubles as an ecological researcher and an environmental data journalist, is Joan Miners. She was the lead author on a study on pollinator biodiversity in California's Pinnacles National Park, which was published earlier this year in Plus One. Joan Miners, it's nice to have you on the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. Nearly 2 million people are newly diagnosed with cancer each year in the United States alone, and more than 600,000 people will die from the disease. One of the main reasons that cancer kills is that it metastasizes. It spreads from one part of the body to another, making treatment harder and sometimes impossible. But what if we could keep that from happening? Well, that's the focus of the research of Tara Deans, who's working to develop a method that could help stop the spread of cancer by using specially engineered blood platelets to go after tumor cells that make it into the bloodstream. Tara Cancer cells that make it into the bloodstream are really hard to detect because they sort of go undercover. Can you explain what they're doing to hide from us? Sure. So these are called circulating tumor cells, and they actually come off of an original tumor. And when they enter into the bloodstream, they actually uh, recruit platelets in the bloodstream. And these platelets completely cover the circulating tumor cell. This provides like, like the Harry Potter invisibility cloak so that the immune system doesn't see them. These cells are using their these platelets to create, like you say, like this invisibility cloak. Let's start from square one. What's a platelet? A platelet is a cell that comes out of a, a stem cell in our body called the hematopoietic stem cell through a process called hematopoiesis. A platelet is made for the purpose of clotting. It also has other functions in the body, but um, its primary job is to form a clot so that we can stop bleeding when we need to. You are now working to design alternative platelets that will do something else. That's right. So I'm a biomedical engineer. 
a lot of my work since I've been at the University of Utah has been to engineer platelets so that they have uh, different functions for delivering different biological molecules for treating various diseases and, and injuries and things. And so we've just been really focused on that. And it wasn't until recently that I learned about the natural pathway that circulating tumor cells use platelets. You started looking at the relationship between platelets and cancer in a a pretty personal way. Can you talk about that? Yes. So actually, one of my friends, uh, Jessie Kavar is her name, she came to me and asked me to help her understand her newly diagnosed cancer. And of course, my knee-jerk response was like, absolutely. And then I was like, oh, no, I don't know anything about cancer. In the meantime, I had been working a lot with these platelets. It wasn't until I started reading about her cancer and about cancer in general that I realized I actually had the technology where I could go after these cells. So you had this aha moment, right? Like, I'm, oh my I'm... gosh, yeah. Like, like an aha, like every single hair on my body was standing up. I mean, it was like, are you kidding me? And it was, yeah, it was pretty incredible, actually. The way that you're going about designing these platelets is really cool. You're teaching stem cells, essentially, to turn into these little superhero platelets. How do you convince a pluripotent cell to grow in one direction, let alone ensure that it has this extra set of instructions about what to do once it completes its epigenetic journey? That's a great question. And so this is a field where we take genetic parts from different fields like molecular biology, genetic engineering, genome engineering, and we put them together. When we put them together, it's called a genetic circuit. And so this is a program that we put into the cells, and then the program is then driven by the user, which would be someone like me, and then we can actually turn different parts of the circuit on and off depending on where the cell is in differentiation. We've been fighting a war on cancer for a really long time. We have had fairly limited success in the past. There's been a shift in the past few years that is perceptively optimistic. You're relatively early into your career. I'm wondering what it's like to be involved in this work at this time. Uh, I would say it's both incredible and surreal. It's daunting, too. I mean, it's because there is so much that it is known. What I've learned that's been amazing about the cancer field is that people want to cure cancer. They want to cure it really badly, and they're so deeply passionate about it. And they will meet and have coffee with someone like me. I'm so new to it that I, I have different ideas. I have different approaches. I'm an engineer. You know, so it's just a totally different approach where I think, well, if we can't get in there, let's find a way to get in. And, uh, and the, you know, and then it's more of an engineering approach at that point. So it's been great. I'm, I'm meeting amazing people since this award has been announced. What makes you think that this tactic is going to work? Like, like re-engineering these platelets to do something differently what makes those hairs on, on the back of your neck stand up? Well, I think if we can get these platelets to arrive at the place that we want to have our therapeutic approach, that's like half the battle, right? And so then the, then it's like, well, then let's hijack this natural process and have our sort of synthetic part of it. We're actually filling these platelets with toxins so that when they actually are activated, then they're going to release this toxin and kill the circulating tumor cell. I'm really curious, like, there's a long way to go, but also, like, just having the idea is a big part of the number of steps that you need to take. I think it's having the idea, but also connecting it to a technology. I think that's also 
an innovative aspect of it and a novel approach to it. You know, I'm not the one that discovered that platelets go around circulating tumor cells. I did not figure that out. But it turns out that people have been trying to tag the circulating tumor cells with the platelets get in the way. What I was reading as presented as sort of a problem, then I was like, but wait, <laughs> back up, because is, is this really happening? And then that's where I sort of was able to take my technology and, and put it in. So what are the next steps then that you need to take to kind of start putting this together? So we have shown in our sort of world before cancer, setting cancer, you know, we've been working on loading the platelets. We also are engineering different receptors on the platelets so that we can actually trigger when these, these platelets actually release their payload. Now that we've added the cancer part in, this is, I call this our platform technology. What we're doing is we're loading the platelets with specific toxins. We call them split toxins. So if you have a whole toxin together in a platelet, it would kill the platelet. So we actually cut the toxic protein in half and put it in two different populations of platelets so that when they come together in the circulating tumor cell, they kill the circulating tumor cell. You were on the front edge of a revolution in biomedical engineering. Things are changing so fast. How, how do you even keep up? I have amazing students. They believe in our vision. So keeping up's hard, but I just hope that we can keep hiring talented grad students and postdocs. That's Tara Deans. She's the recent recipient of a National Institutes for Health grant that will support her work to develop a method to stop the spread of cancer. Tara, can you stick around and listen in as I chat with our next guest? Yes. And you come to me on a summer Usually when we talk about bees, and we talk about them a lot because we produce this show in the beehive state, we start with a sound effect of bees in a hive. But that usually ends up just sounding like static over the radio. So today we give you the BGs. Yeah, we might have jumped the shark on using songs for transitions on this program, but we will forge ahead. And as we do, we're going to follow in the footsteps of bee researchers everywhere who, despite quite a bit of bad news about the species they monitor, are still just trying to get a handle on how many bees are actually out there. It is thought that thousands of wild bee species are in global decline, but the majority of the research out there focuses on honeybees Joan Miners, let's start with this. There are some pretty important distinctions between honeybees and wild bees that a lot of people don't make. Can we start by talking about that? There are 4,000 species of native bees in North America. Honeybees are actually not native to North America. They were imported from Europe for honey and agricultural purposes. So whenever I tell people I study bees, they instantly ask me about honeybees, and I have to kind of redirect the conversation to, I don't actually study honeybees. I study biodiversity patterns of tons of different species of little tiny wild bees that fly around and live mostly solitary lives, and most of them don't make any honey at all. There is no hive. They live in the ground. They dig their nests. It's a solitary life, but they're still very important in pollination and maintenance of ecosystems. In fact, they're really crucial to pollination. I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people think, oh, pollinators, honeybees, but there's all of these other bee species, thousands upon thousands of them, and a lot of them in our national parks. What drew your attention to the bees in Pinnacles National Park? 
Right. Well, I did my graduate research at Utah State University in Logan with Terry Griswold, and he has been working in national parks looking at bee biodiversity for most of his career. He brought me on board and said, we're interested in looking at the bee biodiversity at Pinnacles. There was some initial work done there in the 90s. The goal of my work was to do an updated survey of bee species at Pinnacles and compare it to the work that had been done before. And this sounds like horrible work, having to like wander around a national park. For people who haven't been to Pinnacles, what, what is that place like? Uh, it's amazing. I recommend it. It's one of the newest national parks. Uh, it became the 59th National Park in 2013. It is a really small national park. You can hike across the whole thing in a day. It's got a lot of elevation up and down. It's got some volcanic rock formations that are really neat. And it's also along several fault lines. So all of these things kind of bring together a lot of different types of microhabitats, different types of seeds and lots of wildflower diversity. That ends up being a really optimal habitat for a ton of different species of native bees to coexist. So much so that you found in this really quite small national park, 450 different bee species, including nearly 50 that had not previously been described by science. It's got to be a little breathtaking. Uh, we actually found 48 species at Pinnacles National Park that were range extensions. So not entirely new to science, but had never been found in that area before. We did find one new species, but many of the ones that we found were just new to the area, which brings up a lot of questions of how do we know the difference between changes that have occurred over time and things that we just didn't detect in the past? How do you go about even venturing to come up with a hypothesis about that? Are there clues? I like to think about large-scale patterns, kind of take a step back and you look at everything you think we know altogether. So my survey detected 48 species that we never saw before, and actually 95 species had been detected in the earlier survey that we didn't find. What are all the possible explanations for that? One of them is that Pentacles is losing diversity. One of them is that bees are just moving around. And a third possibility is that our ability to detect what's actually happening in the bee community at Pentacles is just imperfect. And you concluded from your time in Pinnacle that we are indeed, I mean, like imperfect in our conceptual picture, the ecological picture of our world that, I mean, these aren't your words, but we're kind of looking with a, a small flashlight in a big dark room, right? Yeah. So that is one of the inherent challenges of ecology and of studying the natural world that especially if you're going to focus on something as tiny as a bee, you have to be operating at that scale in the moment. But it's also important to zoom out and look at, okay, what do we know overall? So the paper that we published in Plus One earlier this year, uh, I really wanted to know, okay, what other studies have been done like the one that I did in Pinnacles? And when we put them all together, what do we actually know? You went from your work in Pinnacles to the University of Florida, where you earned a PhD in interdisciplinary ecology, and then you pivoted. Part of that story, mm -hmm. I gather, is what happened to you at the Women's March in Washington, D.C. in 2017. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, it's important to me that my work has meaning in the real world and that what we learn at Pinnacles and all those long hours of hiking and 
collecting bees and then many, many hours of curating them. It's important to me that that work translates into sensible changes in policy and how we are managing our natural resources for food security and ecosystem health. I also pay a lot of attention to the news and to science policy. I did go to the Women's March after the inauguration of Trump, partly because I was very alarmed at what I saw in the future for the management of these natural areas that I had just spent all this time learning how important they were for Native bees and how much more work we need to be doing instead of less. And I wrote a op-ed about my experience there and how the Trump administration was likely to set us back even farther in terms of funding to fill in all these gaps in what we know about wild Native bees. And after that, you've spent the past year as an environmental reporter in New Orleans as part of ProPublica's local reporting network. How do you see now your career moving forward? I guess I'm trying to kind of carve sort of a new path. I love being involved in science and ecology and doing this data work, but it's also so important to me to have a platform where we get that understanding into the public arena and to communicate the importance of science and what we know about science and what we don't know to the public so that they can make their voting decisions from a more informed base. It's been really, really rewarding to take all of the hard-earned knowledge from my research and infuse it into my journalism, and I hope to be able to continue to merge those things. That's Joan Miners. Her research on bee species diversity in Pinnacles National Park was published in Plus One earlier this year. And now it's time for an introduction. Joan, this is biomedical engineer Tara Deans. And Tara, this is ecologist and environmental journalist Joan Miners. Hello. Hi, so nice to meet you. You too. So something just struck me as as Joan was talking, she was talking about writing a grant to further her efforts to become an environmental journalist. And Tara, you were recently successful in getting a pretty big award from the NIH to continue your research. We live in a world of limited funding for science. It seems to decline every year. We know on a federal level it has declined significantly in recent years. You guys are both being successful in your pockets. And so I guess my first question, and then I'll let you guys take it from here, but how do you do that? I mean, if there are other scientists listening, like what advice do you give for being able to fund science and science communication in a time where there seems to be less and less money for that? I think you just try, first of all, because the worst they're going to say is no. And I think being passionate, I mean, listening to Joan talk about her bees, I'm excited about bees. It's really exciting to hear her journey just with discovery and finding new things. I mean, this is this is what science is, whether you apply it to medicine or to an ecosystem, finding something you're just deeply passionate about. And that probably comes through in writing. I think that's absolutely right. You have to have the drive to really want to study this thing, and it it does come through in writing. But also, nobody is 100% successful in their grant writing, and so you just keep working on it and making it better and refining your vision of what you want to do and follow the opportunities that that you find. 
the other thing is that I think a lot of graduate students especially get really overwhelmed by trying to absorb everything that is known in the field, which is basically impossible. Um, but it's also really important to constantly be looking for the gaps between what is known, and that's, that's where you want to write those grants to answer those questions. Another question I had was that I had not heard of hematopoietic stem cells before. Uh, I learned from reading your website that they're adult stem cells mm -hmm. from bone marrow. I was wondering if you could elaborate on how those differ from embryonic stem cells, which I had heard of before. I would love to. Uh, so the difference between something like an embryonic stem cell, which is uh, called a pluripotent stem cell, that stem cell has the ability to become all of the cells that are present in an adult body. Whereas the adult stem cell or the hematopoietic stem cell is a stem cell that currently lives in our body and is used regularly to renew and sort of refresh tissue and different blood products they're quite remarkable cells. They have the potential to become all of the cells in our immune system and also our red blood cells on our platelets. That's really interesting. And so the embryonic stem cells are more flexible. Is there more that you can do with them and research also? Oh, sure. Yeah. So there's a lot that actually can be learned from just development in general, but also in 2008, I believe, Shinya Yamanaka won the Nobel Prize for um, induced pluripotent stem cells. These are actually taking an adult like skin cell and reverting it back to becoming a pluripotent stem cell. So it wow. has the same potential <laughs> as the embryonic stem cell. But the really actually cool thing with this is you can actually take a patient with a particular disease, take their cells, revert them back to the pluripotent state, and then study the formation of this disease. So those are also super cool. I have a question for you. And yeah. you, you talked about this different biodiversity in the sense of all these different species that exist. And have you looked into how these bee species maybe interact with each other? Do they play nice with each other? And if they don't, what happens? That's actually a really interesting question that I think that more work needs to be done in the area of competitions or resources between different species of bees. There has been some work that looked at when you introduce honeybees into an area that previously had a thriving community of native bees, do the honeybees displace the native bees from the nectar and pollen that they're trying to collect, or is there enough going around? And there have been kind of mixed results. It depends on the ecosystem and the available resources and the diversity of those plural resources. There is some evidence that honeybees negatively impact native bees. So that's another reason why we need to focus on native bee research instead of just centering all of our concern about bees around honeybees. There's trade-offs there that we don't completely understand yet. So I actually have two questions that my children <laughs> asked me to ask oh, you. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so the first actually is very related to what you were just saying. The first is they have heard that, so you know, there's been this really big push socially to plant more flowers. Let's get more, more honeybees. Let's help the honeybees. We're, you know, we're not going to have any honey. This is a problem. And so my mm -hmm. question is, is it true or not true that we should be planting pollinating flowers where we need bees? I think it depends. Uh, so I don't want to call them out on air, but there's a certain cereal company that did a initiative to show that they cared about bees where they mailed out seed packets of flowers inside the cereal boxes. And 
I was kind of horrified because these are just flower seeds that are being mailed all over the country and the world that are not necessarily native to that environment where you're about to plant them. So I would say the answer is to focus on planting native flower species and to not introduce new species that maybe then are going to have negative impacts on the local plants because that's an issue too. Okay. Okay. My second question is Mm -hmm. um, they would like to know, do all bees sting? There are stingless bees, and those are tropicals. Most other bees do have stingers, but most solitary native bees, since they are not defending a hive, they're much less aggressive, and they're very unlikely to sting you unless they get caught in between layers of your clothes or something like that. So I always try to tell people there's no need to be afraid of bees, especially native bees. They're very unlikely to sting you. Tara, you were asking earlier if bees play nice with one another. And I'm wondering if what you were trying to develop there is like a sense that do bees operate sort of the same way in their environments that cells operate in their environments? Because cells don't always play nice together, right? So, yeah. So I guess it depends on what kind of cells. They don't always play nice. Thinking in terms of cancer cells, it's not that they're launching an attack. They're more silencing everybody around them and promoting their own growth. Not unlike honeybees. That's right. Yeah. Right. Where they've they've moved into a territory and so they've kind of, they start to take away the resources Mm -hmm. from everything else. So what we see in the environmental world is not so much different than what we're seeing inside of us as well. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. And I like to think about these systems as similar dynamics, just at different scales. So you're looking at the cell level smaller than an organism, or you're looking at a hive where there's similar dynamics, or you zoom out and you're looking at an entire ecological community and there's similar dynamics there of competing for resources and a bigger slice of the pie all the time. Tara, your work is to try to figure out how to reduce that conflict, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Guys, we're just about out of time. Tara Deans, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you. And Joan Miners, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode wherever you get your podcasts. We recorded today's episode from the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.